0: Blog Talk Radio
1: it's that time again for the pirate monk podcast back on the air coming at you live from virtually everywhere from the stratosphere i'm your host nate larkin uh here in franklin tennessee joined by our fearless peerless engineer mondo hey mondo
0: hey buddy how are you man
1: I'm doing all right, all right, and of course our co-host from the left coast is with us, Aaron Porter, joining us from San Luis Obispo, California. Good morning. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, Newton has uh, he's hanging on a on a rock face somewhere or uh, suspended from a wall by his fingernails. Hey, Newton, or, how are you?
2: Or just maybe sitting in my dirty desk chair. You know, in the back of the climbing gym. <laughs> <laughs>
1: or that. Or that, yeah.
3: So wow. Newton had a big weekend. Some of our podcast yeah. folks have heard us talk about New Adam and uh, uh, this weekend's men's initiation, and we don't want Newton to have to get into details on it because it's both fresh and uh, it's just not something that we share a lot of details about. So right. that men can take their own walks but uh give us give us a little bit about how you're feeling emotionally after a, a pretty intense weekend
2: yeah it was it was definitely uh an in, an intense experience I think that's the 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 best word for it um, I went into the weekend with very few expectations um, just knowing that it was something that I needed to do uh and it was it was great um, it was um it, it was it was a great weekend. It, it's hard for me to kind of talk a whole lot more about it because, it, like you said, I'm still kind of sorting out what that means um, and and some of the things that we we did and that, that I learned. that um, man, it was it was good and it's something that I, I, I mean, really, that I probably can't recommend enough for guys that have been doing Sampson for a while. Um, it's it's definitely a, a journey worth going on. Uh, so I would I would highly recommend it. The website for the weekend is newadamweekend.com. dot com. Definitely something to look
1: at. Very cool. Well, well How are we actually, things going? And yeah, go ahead. Uh, we actually had four guys from our local uh, Samson group go through yeah. the weekend. Yeah. So it was nice. You were going through with brothers and actually, uh, I, think,
2: I got, Nate. I think there was five. I think we had five guys
1: uh go. Really? Okay. Yeah, we had yeah. we had uh, good good solid sharing about it on Monday night. I know you didn't make the meeting Monday night, but we had a good meeting, and uh, it's always it's always fun to interact with guys fresh off the weekend. Yeah, yeah.
3: So, so how are things going in the Lark house?
1: Oh man, I, they're just really going well. Thank God, Allie is. Uh, she's come out of that long, dark tunnel that followed cancer treatment. She's back almost to herself. In some ways, she feels better than she's than she can remember feeling. So, uh, yeah, we're very, uh, we're just grateful. At least for now, the long nightmare is over. And, uh, yeah, she's doing well. And because she's doing well, I'm doing well. And back on the road, traveling <laughs> again, speaking again, uh, leaving a couple days for Montreal, going to do a, a uh, Promise Keepers event in Montreal this coming Saturday. And a week from this Saturday, I'll be in St. John's, Newfoundland at an event. Wow. Yeah.
3: I don't know why that's funny, but it is.
1: Yeah, it's a long way. You know, my uh, my original plan was to drive because the events are uh, – a week apart, uh, to drive from Montreal to Newfoundland. You know, they're in the same country and, you know, they're so, uh, but when I told the, uh, executive director of promise keepers Canada, what my plans were, he wanted to know when my plane was getting into Newfoundland. And I, I sent him a note and said, I'm driving. He wrote back and said, okay, geography lesson for the American, uh, <laughs> Uh, one Newfoundland is an island uh, there is uh, there is a ferry there is a ferry that will take you there it's a sixteen hour trip across the Gulf of St Lawrence uh, if the ferry is running, which the first week in November it only runs about half the time so uh, so i'll be flying into Newfoundland and looking forward to it. I hear great things about it.
3: I'm I'm glad you said that, because I thought my geography was off when you said you were driving there.
4: <laughs> uh,
3: it's good to know that the uh the over educated seminarian is that yeah. geography. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, What's what what's so, new out
1: there in San Luis, uh, Aaron?
3: Oh, we're just uh we're just trying to help some of our close brothers that are having some hard times. A lot of hard stuff with kids recently, and uh, mm-hmm. I think that's that's some of the hardest the hardest things that a parent can experience is when you're out of control of your kids,
4: yeah.
3: uh, doing making harmful decisions in their life, and just praying through that and trying to be wise. So that's we've. We've been fully engaged in that battle. Yeah,
4: yeah,
3: yeah. So it's been intense been an intense week.
4: Yeah.
1: Mondo, you guys settled into the new place?
3: Oh well
0: things are good here, man. Uh I kinda got like a little dual world going on. Um everything here in Franklin, uh, is peachy, you know, everything is good. Um and uh but, but it seems like every time I pick the phone up. Uh, it was a 180 experience. Um, there's a mm-hmm. lot of weight, a lot of weight that I'm being, uh, I guess, asked or encouraged to carry uh, through some buddies as well as some family up in Michigan. And uh, I, I, I kind of, you know, get the chills when my phone rings, you know. Uh, yeah. this It's, it's kind of weird, man. I mean, it's like everything's cool in my family, in my world, and over here, but then when I take the phone up, it's just gloom and doom and, uh, can you do this? Can you do that? We need your help with this and you know, and of course, I want to help and be a part and do what I can but it's really it's really difficult to try to carry the the worries of the world or the worries of your family, uh especially extended family, people who are in your everyday life it's just it's kind of challenging man so yeah. but uh, so yeah that's that's kind of what's happening. I've got a little bit of the Larkin world going on, but I
3: also got some uh, some Aaron Porter world going on on the phone. <laughs> so, <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Nate, we have two really important and deep letters that we need to get to today. Should we take a break
1: and come back? Yeah, those two letters. Get to them quickly because we also have got a world class guest. Uh, Our listeners are going to absolutely love this conversation. It's coming up with Mark Whitaker. But first, yeah, let's let's open the mailbag.
3: All right, we will be right back on the Pirate Monk Radio Show.
1: That's a thing you can do with uh, live radio. Uh, we've made an adjustment. We've talked with our guest, Mike Whitaker, and he is actually in the airport in Indianapolis. He's finished up speaking this morning at the Mayor's Prayer Breakfast there in Minneapolis, awaiting a flight to Chicago, where he's got another presentation today. Welcome, Mike Whitaker. Thank you. Glad to
5: be on, there.
1: Glad to be on
5: the show. You know, I just finished in Indianapolis, Indianapolis Indiana,
1: the Mayor's oh, okay. Prayer
5: Breakfast.
1: All right. Well, uh, if our listeners uh, saw the 2009 film The Informant starring Matt Damon or if they watched the uh, Discovery documentary that aired shortly after the release of that film or if they read The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times or any leading American newspaper uh, during uh, – let me see. Gosh, when did that go down? Nine uh, anyway. I wore
5: a wire from 1992 to 1995, so I wore yeah. a wire during those three years and became public in 1995. The case did after wearing yeah. a wire for three years.
1: Yeah, uh, our guest was a was a a whistleblower in a very very high profile and uh, until I uh, and really unprecedented uh, Justice Department case, a price fixing case where he was. Uh, an informant and a witness uh, for the Justice Department. Um, and uh, I, I'll tell you what, it's a fascinating story, and I, I know you're pressed for time, Mark, but I wonder if you can tell us, you were a young man when this whole thing got going. You were in your early 30s, but very much a rising star. You were the number four man in one of the largest corporations in the, in the country, Uh, How did you get there, and what was it like being in that position?
5: Well, I was 32, and I'm 56 years old now, by the way, but when I joined AVM, Archer Daniels Midland, which at that time, they were the 56th largest company on the Fortune 500 and the 90th largest company in the world. Today, they're the number 27th largest company in America, so they're about a 100-year-old company, one of the first companies on the New York Stock Exchange. I joined them in 1989 and I joined them as I was already executive of another Fortune 500 company for 7 years before that. And ADM, uh, at that time I was all about greed and power and was a young man that did not have God in my life so it was just all about how fast I could move up the corporate ladder. I had an Ivy League PhD in uh, biochemistry from Cornell at that time and and the ADM hired me as the divisional president, number four. We had a chairman, a vice chairman, a president of the company, and then me. I was divisional president and corporate vice president of the company, 32 years old, and my base hour at the time was 350000 but most of our compensation was stock options and bonuses, and it equated about $3 million a year the seven years that I was I was employed there. And I had my own corporate jet. The top executives got access to, the seven top executives have access to jet, so I had access to a Falcon 50 anytime I wanted to, and lived in a mansion with an eight-car garage, and had it filled with eight cars, and boy, I felt like I was a rock star, Yeah. and I I really, my own success became my failure, because I really focused on compensation, money, and
1: power. Mm. Yeah, yeah. uh, You discovered while you were there that uh, the company was engaged in some practices that uh, are generally regarded as unethical. They'd gotten together with their competitors, right, to to fix the price of a, of a high demand commodity. Tell us about that.
5: Yeah, matter of fact, not only was it uh, unethical, the price fixing scheme where we formed an international cartel it's actually illegal and yeah. probably one of the biggest you know white collar frauds that one can be involved with. And the company brought me into it after about three years of the company. I would have been about 35 years old then. And it was proven in court that it was going on for over a decade, a decade even before I even joined the company. And they kind of brought me into that part of the training because our CEO was 75 years old, our president was 69, and they kind of started bringing me into some of the things uh, uh, that they, they, where they earned extra income in the company for the earnings for the company. And we were already a $70 billion company, and it didn't make sense to be involved with illegal activity, but it's, it's proof that greed, with greed it's never enough. Because we were already a very very successful company without doing that, and the theft and the price fixing added up to an extra billion dollars a year, one billion. But like I said, we were already a seventy billion dollar company, so it was a small fraction. So it made no sense. But they brought me into it. I was learning. uh, They wanted me to learn learn the ADM ways. And after about seven months, it was weighing heavily on me. I've been with my wife since she was in seventh grade, and I was in eighth grade when we first met, and we were high school sweethearts. And she could tell something was weighing heavily on me. On November fifth, nineteen ninety-two, after I was involved with this crime for seven months, she she set me down and and really had me uh, talk what was on my mind. And I shared it with her. And within an hour from the time I, I told her, she made me she forced me to turn myself into the FBI. She said I had to turn myself in. If I didn't, she would. And wow. it's amazing a case that was going on for ten years. Over a hundred executives know about it and knew about it. And it took a stay at home mom raising three young children. To blow the whistle on one of the largest white-collar crimes in U.S. history. Wow.
4: So listen my. up,
5: stay-at-home mom. So because was my wife, home. Home. because it was my wife <laughs> that turned myself in. Yeah,
4: yeah. We yeah. were
5: stealing from all the consumers. Our food additives at the company are utilized and consumed by, like our products would be in Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Kellogg's, Kraft. When I say our products, that's the, the products that the company I was involved with then, ADM. But
4: mm-hmm. the ADM
5: products would have been in most of the foods that people put in their grocery cart every day. And we were yeah. basically stealing from consumers.
1: Yeah, yeah, by by uh, artificially uh, inflating the price of this standard food. Yeah, audit.
5: with our competitors, this international cartel getting together with our competitors. Yeah, yeah,
1: so, yeah.
5: So after all this, uh, after you finished those three years of,
3: of that work with the FBI, what? Uh, give us the quick. What happened with your life after that? Because that's probably well, where a lot of people don't know.
1: Well. You know, before we get there, I want to hear about what, what was it like to work for the FBI and what was it like to be undercover? You were running then, by necessity, a double life. How, what was that like?
5: Yeah, I would meet uh, four FBI agents at 6 o'clock in the morning every morning for three years. It, it's the longest duration of any – I was their keynote speaker at the Quantico FBI Academy last year, and I've done seven events for the FBI in the last two and a half years. And it was the longest duration of anybody wear a wire in U.S. history. No one's ever wore a wire every day for three years. I'd meet with them at 6 o'clock in the morning. They'd shave my chest, put the microphones to my chest. I had three different tape recorders, one on my body, one on a note, in a notebook, and one in a, in a briefcase. And I wore those three wires every day for three years, taking my coworkers, my supervisors, and in some cases my friends. And it was a very stressful life. And the FBI would tell me as they were wiring me up, they said, look, if these guys find out you're wearing a wire, they will kill you. I mean, they they let me know I was in danger each and every day. Yeah. So it was a very stressful life.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, your wife knew what was going on. Did your kids know what was going on?
5: Yeah, they did. I'd come home at night. I would meet me in our home sometimes at night. And I'd have to be taking all those tapes off and, and taking the uh, the wires that were taped to my chest. So my kids saw that on a daily basis for three years.
1: Yeah. What so was a very what
5: unique kind, life.
1: Yeah, what kind of a, a mental and emotional pressure did this put you under, and how did you respond to that, Mark?
5: Yeah, I, after the FBI do not allow informants to wear a wire longer than a year uh, because of what a meltdown they saw me go through by wearing one for three. Mm. And I had a tremendous uh, meltdown, was having a, a nervous breakdown, and my wife would find me out on the driveway at three in the morning during thunderstorms with a gas leak blower blowing leaves off during, and I'd have a shirt and tie on during thunder, thunderstorms doing that. I was having a definitely a, a complete meltdown the longer that I wore that wire. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, did you ever come to the point where you wondered whether life was worth it?
5: Oh yeah, I absolutely did. I, I eventually, uh, eventually took to suicide and, um, uh, it, and I lost all hope and, and someone reached out to me and, uh, and went through what's called Operation Timothy, a man from Christian businessman connection, a man from a group called CBMC. He read that in the newspaper where I wore a wire, and, and he and, and, and all the pressures that I was under, and, and I attempted suicide. He read that, and he reached out to me and went through what's called Operation Timothy, it's a Bible study, and I tell you what, it uh, it, it led me eventually led me to Christ. He, along with another man named Chuck Colson, who reached out to me, and, and you may know Chuck Colson. He was the yeah, sure. White House Counsel under President Nixon. Watergate. He went to prison 20 years earlier in the, in the 70s. And yeah. between uh, Ian Howes and Chuck Colson, I tell you, they mentored me for for years and years. Chuck Colson mentored me until he passed away about a year ago, April 21st last year.
4: Mm. Wow.
5: So that's had a big impact on my life. I brought Christ to my life uh, at age 41, and it changed my life. Now,
1: that yeah, was, I mean, was Go Go ahead, Nate. Well, that was made possible, uh, that mentoring and, and the, the your Timothy experience, only because you were in prison, true? That's I mean, right. that's well,
5: someone from CBMC read that I was going to prison, yeah. and so he reached out to me seven months before I went to prison. That's when it was in oh, the newspaper
4: yeah. about yeah, my he...
5: suicide attempt. So he reached out right before, wow. and, and then Chuck Colson reached out to me shortly after I entered prison, so between those two men. But it all started shortly before I entered prison, and I turned my life to Christ uh, my third month in prison, I Had eight and a half years to go, but it was my third month in prison, June of ninety-eight.
1: And uh, I, I, tell me about uh, tell me about your marriage and your family during those prison years.
5: Well, the divorce rate uh, the divorce rate for people that go to prison five years and longer is ninety-nine percent divorce rate. Wow. That's the official statistic. Ninety-nine percent divorce rate. My wife and I are married thirty-four years. Already, this past June, uh, our marriage not only survived, it thrived. Our children uh, are stronger than, than ever. They're all adult children now and all in the, and all have careers and, and doing great. And, and I, I tell you, uh, Christ, not only, Christ made our life better and not bitter. Because people come out of prison either better or bitter, and we came yeah. out better. And the only difference between yeah. those two words is the letter E, E have an eternal value in better.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
5: my wife visits, they allow 20 hours a weekend for families to visit. There are about five inmates that get visits out of 700 because of the divorce rate. Families walk away from them. And my wife came 20 hours every weekend with my children for nine years.
4: Wow.
3: (laughs) She moved to three different states
5: to be where I was located. She moved to three different states to live next to the prison. Uh, Three different locations. yeah, Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah.
2: Hey, Mark, what was, it, what was it like, I mean, after spending three years basically being two people, and I think a lot of our listeners can identify with this double identity that they've that they lived, maybe not in the same way that you have, what was it like kind of unraveling and unplugging from one identity and reestablishing um, your, your own identity, your true identity?
5: Yeah, it was it was a difficult process. After three years acting like a loyal executive, like I, like I, I was, you know, I had to act loyal to those executives that I was working with. But in reality, instead of building that company, I was tearing it down. Yeah. And they paid hundreds of millions of dollars of fines. Four top executives went to prison. The four very top executives went to prison. They paid a hundred million dollar government fine. Uh, Coca Cola alone, I think, got a four hundred million dollar class action settlement made So this. This cost this company billions uh, and several guys in prison. And, uh, you know, I, they thought I was loyal to them. So it was a, it was a difficult process to readjust about who I, who I really was. And I, But I tell you, having God in my life after all that crumbled, I will say this. Yeah. It definitely it saved my life for sure. And I found my true purpose in life. And in prison I earned $20 a month uh, for nine years after earning $3 million a year for seven years. And I tell you, I, I had more purpose in prison. I would say those nine years in prison were some of the most productive years of my life. Hmm.
4: Wow.
5: Because I took other guys through the same Bible study, that Operation Timothy that uh, Ian House took me through. Sixty-one people I walked through Operation Timothy. Uh, that Bible study led them to Christ. I helped hundreds of guys get their GEDs, learn how to read, learn, to, learn how to write. And I finally found that God's purpose wasn't uh, to give me an Ivy League Ph.D. to, to be CEO of a great-focused uh, position and, and all about me, God gave me that education to help other people. And finally I found that a mansion and all those promotions that never filled that void and all the money and the corporate jets never filled that void. And it's amazing, I was became a free man in prison because finally that void was filled. And it happened in hmm. prison at $20 a month.
3: Now how quickly did that mindset change because you had spent uh, decades developing an eye for what was important in life, had you just come to the end of yourself? And so it was just an immediate relief into, wow, I don't have to be enslaved to that anymore. Or was it a hard process for you mentally and spiritually?
5: No, it was a process, but it, it didn't take years and years. It took seven or eight months. It was after my suicide attempt when I really reflected who I am, what am I here for, what's my purpose here, so it was about it was about seven or eight months after my suicide attempt when I brought Christ into my life. But that process started uh, after that suicide attempt when I looked at, well, God, you didn't let my suicide attempt be successful. You kept me here for a reason. And I started spending a lot of time reflecting what that reason was, but also had two wonderful mentors during that time, and Ian Howes and Chuck Colson. Yeah. So, tremendous guys to, to bounce those to bounce that off and ask them the tough questions about as I'm searching for my purpose.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh what would you say to a fellow who's looking at uh, a, maybe a court ordeal? I mean you wound up convicted of charges uh yourself, uh serving time in prison. Uh that's that's got it's gotta be a terrifying prospect for anybody. Um uh, there's a great temptation to continue in whatever deceit you're engaged in, rather than face consequences that dire. What would you say to a guy who's who faces the prospect of legal action if he gets honest?
5: Yeah, I would say to a guy, that, and I do talk to a lot. Matter of fact, here at the Indianapolis Prayer Breakfast, I met a doctor that's actually facing charges, maybe going to the trial in the next in the next couple of months. And what I say to him, and what I say to anybody facing any extreme adversity in their life. And most of us are are going to go through some adversity in our life, no matter if it's a court case or prison. There's people with medical problems, uh, uh, children that have health problems, financial problems, loss of jobs. So we all go through adversity so it's not just prison and court cases. And what I tell them, and I learned it firsthand, boy, with Christ in your life, you can can not only survive it, you can thrive it. I, I felt like I was blessed with my adversity. I only learned who God is. And I really only learned about myself what my true purpose was with the adversity. I mean, God will take a a mess and turn it into a message, and he's done that, and take a test and turn it into a testimony, and he's done that with me. I I mean, I think the adversity becomes a blessing, but you've really got to have God in it with you to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, just describe life for us today, William, uh, your home life with Ginger and what your professional ministry life looks like. And then uh, uh, tell our listeners how they can reach you if they'd like to do that.
5: Okay. Uh, my life today is I'm 56 years old. I'm, uh, see, the amazing thing is 20, one of the things I prayed about when I was in prison, would I be employable again, to be productive for my family again? I worried about that because I was going to come out a convicted felon. Even uh, even with the education I had, I felt like the, the convicted felon, being a convicted felon would make that very difficult. And I was hired yeah. back in my industry in a biotechnology company 24 hours after I got out of prison. I've been there seven years now, and I was promoted to COO and president, the number two executive, three years ago. Um, so I mean, I've been employed right wow. in my own field and, and actually promoted in my own field. But it's such a different life. It's not about uh, it's about serving others, and that's why I like cancer research because that is serving others. But when I really look where yeah. I spend most of my time, it's things like the mayor's prayer breakfasts and where I'm heading now to Chicago to speak at the Loyola Law School. And next week, uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota, near St. Paul, speaking at her prayer breakfast. My wife often travels with me. She's actually with me now, and she gets involved with the Q&A, my wife Ginger, of those events. So I really, I do seven or eight events a month. We're doing 86 events this year. And we follow up with a lot of people that we speak at at these events. So uh, my really, uh, really guide, I feel like God put me through this to be a, a witness for him. So yeah. that's where we spend mm-hmm. most of our time is in ministry. We help couples um, get ready for their spouse to go to prison. We help couples that are getting out of prison. And it's just, a, I learned in prison by serving others is the only thing that filled that void. And then when I got released seven years ago, we kept that up. And that's what we do. We serve mm. others, and
4: that's what, uh, that, that's what God intends us to do Yeah, mm. yeah. for all of
5: wow, us.
3: You know, let, let me ask you, before you uh, give some contact ways for people to get blessed by this, um, obviously having your life portrayed in a major Hollywood feature uh, causes a lot of people to have opinions about your story that they think they understand it, they think they get it, where if it was just a story in a paper or a magazine, it wouldn't have touched nearly as many people. So how has that affected your life and ministry, having your story put out
5: there in that way? Well, the, the story was a Hollywood uh, version of the story, so it ended with me in prison. So it don't it ends in 1998, so it doesn't have anything about redemption and second chances of what God's done in my life since that day, because it ended, it was really a crime drama that just focused on those three years of undercover and then the four top executives going to prison. So it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't really, it doesn't have, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have the redemption that's occurred in my life and it doesn't have anything about the relationship I have with God in my life. So it is a Hollywood version. But I will say this, I feel strongly that all these events that we do, and we do seven or eight a month, as I mentioned, None of those would happen without that movie. So God blessed that movie that was very painful because it was the darkest years of my life, those three years mm-hmm. of in a wire. But God blessed that story to be to be a platform to go out where people are wondering, well, what's happened the last 20 years? What's happened since then? So God blessed, uh, God blessed us that as a platform to tell the rest of the story where we're able to tell what God's done in our lives. So it's been a blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a blessing. Mm-hmm. As painful as it was, it was been a blessing.
4: Yeah, yeah. And uh, they can
5: see that on markwhitaker dot com. Uh, there, there's a trailer of the movie, and also the Discovery Channel documentary, which was a very accurate 2010 Discovery Channel documentary with the real FBI mm-hmm. agents. My wife and I. That's on markwhitaker And then on the right hand tab, it says contact, and it has my email address. Uh, uh, it has my email address on there where they can contact me right on my website on www dot com. With Whitaker, W-H-I-T-A-C-R-E, like acre of land, W-H-I-T-A-C-R-E. MarkWhitaker.com.
1: All right. Okay. Well. Terrific. Well, Thank we, you so much for uh, joining us, Mark. Go yeah. ahead, Aaron.
3: Well, I was just going to say. No, I really thanks enjoyed for,
5: this. I appreciate the opportunity.
3: Yeah. I think our folks are are going to hopefully be thinking about some of the people who are going through some of those prison relationships and facing consequences uh to go in a new direction i mean that's mm. i'm hoping they're inspired by that i'm hoping there are some wives that are being inspired that they can that they can do such amazing ministry for their husbands
5: as they make those decisions what a powerful thing yeah and Chuck Colson, he, look what he did. you know he went to prison, he passed away a year ago at age 80, but he went to prison 40 years earlier, and boy, he did amazing, he did a lot more amazing. God had him do a lot more amazing things in serving others than he ever did being a White House counsel in the White House.
4: So yeah, the last
5: 40 yeah, years yeah. He, he blessed a lot He blessed millions of people's lives, including yeah. me: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. that's, uh, that's a good example.: what a, Yeah, yeah, what a wonderful message. Well, Lord bless you, Mark. We'll let you get to your plane, get back to your wife. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, uh, we trust God's going to use you right there at Loyola later on in the day.
5: Well, thank you very much. And God bless you guys. appreciate the opportunity to be on the
1: show. Okay. We'll, you, talk, we'll talk to yeah. you later. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks,
5: Mark.
1: Okay.
3: Well, we will be right back with uh, some more on the Pirate Monk radio program.
4: Light little steps on soft sacred sand, a washing away ways against what we planned. A sifting of sorrow, a lifting of pain, toward every tomorrow the wisdom of rain. caught in the onslaught the pleasure appears on looks the one who treasures our tears a magical moment a mystery made plain to find in each other the wisdom of rain let it fall and roll down your face. Let it fall. Like the lavishing of grace. In your arms every sadness refrains. Surprised by the wisdom of rain. A flower of diamonds of white gold a promise for life until we are old help for the strife and strength when we strain to seek in the present the wisdom of the rain let it fall
3: well we are back that was uh, what a story what what a story! And I love how his wife was uh, so much the hero from the beginning of the wiretapping through time and prison. That is that is one of my favorite parts of the story. What did you guys think?
2: Uh, that it's it's a, it's a lot to take in, but uh, just the idea that God can put you and and bring you through. Um, Awful, painful experiences that you put yourself into, and redeem that, and use that for for his good and for others' good, and for your own good. Um, that's that's what I kept hearing as, as Mark was sharing his story.
3: A mess to a message, a test to a testimony. Who knew there were so yeah. many ways to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've got some letters. Newton, uh, why don't you read us the first one, and let's get into it, because these are some uh, weighty things some guys are going
2: through. Yeah. Uh, So this one starts, Hey, guys, I just recently stumbled upon the Pirate Moon podcast, and it's totally touching my life. I first heard Nate's story when Bethel Church in Reading played his I Am Second video during a series they had called Moral Revolution. I was absolutely shocked and relieved with his story. Here's the deal. I'm going to cut to the chase. Ever since I was around 15, I've been into transgender or female porn. I've never actually acted out on it or even met a transgender person. However, it was like once I saw it for the first time, it struck a chord so deep in me, there's nothing I can do to keep from getting sucked in. I used to be addicted to drugs and an atheist, and God powerfully delivered me from that. I'm now an ordained pastor. I've been married for two years and this is where the situation gets super sticky. My wife told me if I was ever caught looking at porn at all of any kind, she would divorce me. No second chances, no questions asked. Just sign the papers. I feel like a caged animal and a freak. I've reached out to other pastors and my best friends who lived in a homosexual lifestyle for nearly 20 years. And still, these images and these urges flood my mind. I just want to connect with other guys. I recently, I recently relocated, and I'm looking for a chapter here where I live. Just answer me these questions. Am I a freak? Am I somehow a worse sinner than others that have stumbled into porn? And what should I do about my wife? Um, that's, that's heavy. That's <laughs> heavy. Yeah,
3: and there's and those what? are two really really important questions there. Uh I have Yeah. I have looked into why uh men look at transgender pornography. Is, uh, to label himself a freak is to feel very alone. And so many of us yeah. when we're struggling with sin feel isolated, like we're the only ones, we're the worst ones. And uh she-male or transgender pornography is very popular on the Internet. And so the question is why. Uh, so first, he needs to know he's not alone in this struggle. And this, the question that comes up, that why question is, what's going on with me that I would want to look at that or that I would be turned on by that? usually comes with questions of, does that mean that I have same-sex struggles? Am I gay and just don't know it? And I think there's uh, two answers to that. One, I think there are men out there that do struggle with uh, same-sex attractions that are kind of walking that middle line with this kind of pornography. But I also believe, and by the way, this has not been researched very well, uh, pornography, like any addiction, has an escalation to it. And that we uh, Men can't get the same... A chemical reaction in their brain looking at the same pornography over and over again now for some guys they can uh, manage that and stay at a softer core porn kind of thing but for other guys uh, when they when they're feeling that depletion they start exploring different might be more aggressive it might be more fetish focused And they don't even know why they're doing it. In fact, they, in real life, might not ever think that was interesting or attractive or that they would want to participate in what they're looking at, and yet they're drawn to more and more extreme kinds of pornography. Well, that's just a cycle of addiction. That is the escalation. And I think we need to understand that in our own brains, especially when we start getting drawn into a darker place. We need to understand that there are some hooks being set in our flesh, And I feel so bad for this man that this began uh, so young for him. That is so hard for a 15-year-old to be exposed to those things. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Our young men aren't supposed to be exposed to all these manners of uh, explicit sexual activity. So, uh, no, I don't think he is a freak. I think he is struggling with a cycle of addiction that has to be faced uh, very realistically. And this really leads to the problem with his wife, that she is not a safe person for his struggle. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing worse than when a man is getting pushed further into isolation because his, his life mate, his partner that God has given him, has declared they are unsafe for him to be broken. So I think they Mm -hmm. need to have a pretty serious sit-down, and I think it's great if he is not in the middle of acting out because it's not a confession of acting out. It's saying, you made this statement when we got married, and we need to do something about it. I can't can't live under bondage and find freedom at the same time. I need to know that your love is bigger than Mm -hmm. my broken. And she yeah. needs this understanding. And there's things she can be reading uh, to understand that. But her statement to him, hey, that is heavy and puts an added pressure that is not actually helping him move to Christ in freedom. It's keeping yeah. him in fear.
2: Yeah. So I think and, they need to I have would, a
3: conversation.
2: Yeah. And I would, if I can speak directly to to his question about being a worse sinner than others, um, absolutely not no, you're not you're not a worse sinner than everyone else. Um, I think that's a message from Satan designed to weed weed him out to weed you out um, to make you more isolated um, and, and so absolutely not you're he's you know no no worse of a sinner than me. Or Nate, or Aaron, or Mondo, or anybody else. Um, so I, I think that's something that that he needs to to hear, um, same as him, you know.
3: So I would uh, I would invite our our listener friend to contact me on Facebook, and we can set up a phone conversation because I'm sure that that's a uh, a scary conversation to have with a wife and even. To, to set up a conference call kind of thing because sometimes having that third-party credibility is very important for all of us mm-hmm. when we're at an issue that's, that's confusing. But what, what a great thing when my wife started understanding my brokenness and she became yeah. a safe place for me. That's huge. And that mm-hmm. moved me towards uh, being able to pursue Jesus instead of just pursue not acting on sin.
1: Big difference.
3: Yes. Any other thoughts, guys? Nate, are you still on? Nate's been having technical difficulties.
1: Yeah, I've been jumping in and out. Uh, Yeah, this really does remind me the more, you know, I was totally naive when I went to my first 12-step meeting for sex addicts. Uh, I had no idea the broad range, the variety of things, really the unlimited number of things that can become sexualized to the human brain. I've had quite quite an education in the last 15 years, and it. Uh, I agree with you, Aaron. It's it's tragic when a brain not yet fully developed, somebody just in mid adolescence, in 15, uh, is fed a, uh, a, a a powerful sexual image. Uh, that uh, resonates deep. Um, I do believe, you know, I'm grateful that God has given us a brain that is capable of healing. That neural pathway will never go away, but its uh, power can be diminished and new ones can be formed. But that growth and that healing comes only in the light of fellowship, within the warmth uh, and, and under the ultraviolet rays of confession. Uh, really has to find, my brother here has to find a safe place, to be honest. I'm glad he's looking around for a Samson group in the place where he's moved. I do know that there are some there in the area. We didn't disclose where he's gone, but we know where he's gone. Uh, And then there are also other groups similar uh, uh, to Samson, uh, also on a recovery theme that will be safe for uh, this brother of ours to get into. It's going to be absolutely crucial to do that and then to navigate those difficult waters with uh with a wife who it sounds to me as though she she really needs some healing she's got some fear around sexual stuff that has caused her to put uh sexual sin uh in a category all its own good
3: well who who's got our second letter
1: Uh, I've got one I don't know if my connection is going to hold up long enough to read it uh, but I'll give it a shot okay Uh, gentlemen here's some quick background at the beginning of this month after some conversations with a good friend I decided to talk to my wife about going to talk to a marriage counselor about our issues which stemmed from my habit of deception at the same time I confessed to her finally finally My struggle with pornography. She was taken by surprise and very hurt. We went to our first uh, counseling session the next day. A week later, our counselor recommended that I look into the Samson Society. I plan on going to my first meeting this evening.
3: And there goes Nate. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let me bring it up, and I will continue. Let's see if, uh, if mine got... Cut off. i one of your... Um, you lost me? Back.
1: Okay. You,
3: i We did lose you. He's he's looking into a Samson Society was where we lost you.
1: All right. They're going to try it again. Uh, boy. No, and nobody else uh, has this, this letter with us.
2: This past weekend, uh, he went on a road trip uh, by himself. And
1: can you can you jump in from there, Nate? Sure.
3: Listen listen to the
1: special podcast. Yeah, listen to several podcasts. On one of your previous podcasts, you answered a letter about forgiveness when it involves forgiving someone of a wrong uh, they did, not to you directly, but to someone close to you, and how that can affect the relationship with the person who was actually, uh, directly wronged. You gave a great answer about bearing each other's burdens without sharing their pain and hurt. Uh, The question that I'm wrestling with now is this. What if it's a question of forgiving yourself? How can you do that uh, before the person you've hurt is ready to forgive you? Should you do that before she's ready to forgive you? Uh, As Christians, we're told to approach the throne boldly, but how do you approach your wife? Uh, He closes with this statement. These few lines of questions seem insufficient compared to the depth and desperation I feel.
3: Yeah. All right, well, let's, let's start with the, uh, that thought of forgiveness and remind yeah. ourselves with what, what Jesus said. So often we work on forgiveness as if it's something we can work on. Uh, where when Jesus talks about forgiveness and when he, he gives the parable of the unmerciful servant. Our experience with gospel grace is directly linked to how much we're able to forgive. I can, I can fake it all I want, but I will not experience the release of true forgiveness until I really step into how broken I am and how much I've been forgiven of. As with the unmerciful servant, he was forgiven a huge debt, but he didn't feel it. And so he felt totally justified in not forgiving petty pets. If he had entered into the magnitude of what he'd been forgiven, then he would have been able to forgive easily. So I think because we've made our sinfulness all these external things, oh, I struggle with pornography. Oh, well, I only struggle with anger. Well, I I don't seem to struggle that much at all. And so for a lot of wives... I find they don't have as many external fruits as their husbands, and yet they struggle with living in fear, that they struggle with trying Mm -hmm. to keep things in their control because of that fear. They have all of these issues that point to their brokenness and their huge need of Christ in their life. But as long as sins are only focused on externals, and then we rate them according to how bad this one is versus that one, then we become like the unmerciful servant who cannot forgive petty sins because we don't understand the magnitude of the forgiveness we've been given. Mm -hmm. This is always the core of forgiveness, that it's not simply a matter of working on the relationship with the other person. It's working on my relationship with Christ and the true depth and cost of the forgiveness of my fallen self. Then we get to him, and the answer is the exact same. How do I forgive myself? It's the exact same issue. That I need to understand the current value of the blood of Christ. Over and over, we are saved through faith in the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins. The
5: sprinkling
3: of the blood cleanses our conscience. The Bible is so clear that we have an up-to-date value of a real, tangible, tangible, uh, forgiveness economy in God's kingdom. And it's always the blood of Christ. And as I come to that, I can start to say, for me to continue condemning myself is to devalue Christ's blood and his work. His question is fair as to, well, should I, can I, is it appropriate that I forgive myself when I haven't yet been forgiven by somebody else? And the answer is, of course you must. Because to live under condemnation of anything or anybody is to remove yourself from your gospel story. There is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ. So if somebody else hasn't yet experienced the true death of forgiveness and they can't yet give it, that cannot be the reason for us to enter into a Christless life. It is through seeing his hope through seeing a joy that comes through true forgiveness, that hopefully his wife will start to see what she needs to see. Uh, that That is an absolute must. He, that's his work, and his wife's work is her work, and yeah. he can't manipulate it by holding himself to a standard that is without Christ.
2: Yeah. I think, and in, in to his question about how, do, how does he approach his wife, um, I think to me, like, forgiving yourself is, is key, like, like you're talking about, Aaron. But I think when you go to talk to someone else about seeking their forgiveness, I think that it has to come with a, an air of humility um, and, a, and a recognition of the pain that you've caused um, and understanding that they can forgive you, but it's still going to hurt. Um, you know, what you've done is still going to hurt, and it's, it'll, it'll take time. Um, whether she's forgiven him or not, that wound will take time and take work on her part and, and possibly his part to heal. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's that's key. Like boldly asking for forgiveness from your wife is a little bit different than boldly asking for forgiveness from God. Um, so I would I would encourage him when he's there um, to to do so with humility and be prepared for her to to forgive him, but still be very hurt and very angry. Uh, I, think, I think that's, I guess that would be my advice.
3: Often, too, we need to know that uh, a next step as, as he enters into God's grace, and even as he allows his wife for her process, because that's, that's important to say, okay, I might be farther down this road, and it's taken her more time, And to be very gracious with that process. Uh, I find a lot of folks start to get resentful of the person who just won't get to that place of forgiving. And anger starts to develop. Because they're saying, I've dealt with this, and now you just keep holding it over me. So to love your wife like Christ loves the church is to sacrifice yourself to be ready for a hard journey, to be ready for a long journey. And we pray that she gets to Christ sooner rather than later in this, and that it's not just about the external fruits of sinfulness, but you just keep loving and loving sacrificially because you're walking in the power of the forgiveness you've received. And that's one of the biggest reasons for you to pursue, yes, I am forgiven. I can forgive myself because Christ has forgiven me. And now you walk in that amazing power as your wife goes on her journey, which might be hard for you. Any other thoughts for our brother?
2: I think you said it pretty well. And I don't know that Nate is online to be able to say anything.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we love getting your letters. And these are, uh, boy, I always feel honored. When guys are sharing these hard things, because this is where the rubber meets yeah. the road. Yeah. Yeah. So what? What an honor to get to be a part of your journeys. So keep sending in your letters. I think your letters uh, touch a lot of hearts because you are not the only ones dealing with this. That there are other men out there that are struggling with their relationships with their wives because of uh, their how sin has manifest itself in your brokenness. There are other guys specifically dealing with transgender pornography, and we need to talk about it, or else we all feel alone. So keep right. sending in your letters. Sure. Mondo, where do they send them?
0: SamsonPodcast at gmail.com.
3: SamsonPodcast at com. Send them in. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we are about out of time, so from Nate, the in-and-out man, and Mongo producer, <laughs> Newton Dominey and executive producer, Jay Spiegel. Have a great week, and we will look forward to seeing you again next week on the Pirate Monk Radio Show. <laughs>
4: hey, 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 hey. Give yourself